During my first year in Birmingham, my first year as a student at Beeson, I, I worked as an assistant at a local rec center. And one of the perks of this job was having a desk that was stationed directly in front of the facility's three vending machines. And this may seem irrelevant, but one of, out of, one of these three machines at any given time was always somehow malfunctioning. And this proved to be immensely entertaining as I sat at my desk checking people in and out because even though we compensated um, those who had their money eaten, as they would tell me, um, this didn't stop some people, especially some of the young kids who came to our gym, from throwing fits over not having received their desired candy bar or Dr. Pepper or whatever it was. And... Um, over time, honestly, it began to feel like some sort of ingenious social experiment where we got to test and watch the temperaments and the patience level of each one of our gym members play out. And um, we had some who would just approach me and, you know, calmly express their sort of dissatisfaction with what happened and I'd, you know, compensate them. But then we had others who took it upon themselves to teach this inanimate object a lesson. Um, and they would shake the machine and they would mash the buttons violently and all in hopes of somehow, you know, maybe that candy bar that they wanted would sort of fall off. I mean, y'all probably all seen it when the bar is just sort of hanging there and if you just shake it, it might fall. And so they would try and usually nothing would come of it. Um, and there's something really similar to this going on in our passage from Isaiah that was just read. The opening verses of Isaiah 58, 1 through 12, Israel is throwing its own fit. They're calling God to take the stand. They call out, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? We've paid our religious duty as we see it. We've performed the ritual. We put our money in the machine. We press the button and you're not giving us anything back. God's not responding to their ritual or religious observance and the Israelites, they wish to know why. And the Israelites at this point in time, their, their religion was plagued by two fundamental misconceptions about what religion truly is. Both of which result in the turning away of God's favor. His unresponsiveness to them. And the first of these assumptions is the idea that somehow Yahweh, the triune God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, can be bartered with. That we can force His hand, that we can purchase or buy His pleasure and His favor somehow through our own ritual performance. And this the Israelites surely got from their neighbors. The Canaanites that surrounded them, all these pagan nations, had these gods that essentially worked like vending machines. You perform your ritual, you bring the sacrifice, you say this prayer, you perform this religious ceremony, and the God is obliged to respond to you. You put in your dollar bills of religious observance, you press the button, you perform the ritual, and surely it's the God is going to respond. And the Israelites have sort of picked up on this. This idea that you get out of your religion what you put in. That somehow we can 
arouse the favor of God with our own efforts. And, you know, before we condemn the Israelites, we have to recognize that we too are so prone to fall into this. Surrounded as we are in America by consumerism, individualism, a whole bunch of other isms, our own forms of Baals and Asherahs, our own false gods, we're so quick to trade in a a loving Heavenly Father and, and true religion for nothing more than a religious vending machine, thinking that if we put in what we're supposed to, we press the right buttons, that somehow we're going to earn something from God. That if we attend this meeting, we go to this many services, we fast this many days, we pray this prayer, we take this posture, that somehow God's going to owe us something. And Scripture throughout is abundantly clear that God, His favor is not aroused by this sort of ritual, this sort of empty religion. It's the wrong sort of currency. It's not how He works. It's not what He's looking for. God's not a vending machine. He's not like the Canaanite gods. And He's no man's debtor. Paul asks in Romans 11, 35-36, Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The God of the universe has no needs. There's nothing that we can bring to Him that would put Him in our debt. He already owns it all. It's all His already. He runs the whole thing. To the psalmist, he declares, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. As if to say, I don't want your empty religion. I don't want heartless, impersonal ritual. He continues, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. Yahweh, the triune God, is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He owns everything. There's nothing we can bring to Him to force His hand or twist His arm or somehow earn His favor as if His favor were for sale. So that's the first misconception. The second misconception that the Israelites are suffering from here is the notion that religion exists for my own sake, that it's all about me, that it's built to meet my perceived needs. And this too is is very popular in our culture. It'll certainly fill up pews. You tell people that religion's all about them, it's going to meet this, that need that they have been so longing for, that religion itself is all about me, fulfilling my needs. And the problem with this is if religion is all about me, then there's no necessary connection between my religion and my ethics. There's no necessary connection between my religion and the way that I treat my neighbor. In fact, their welfare becomes of little concern to me. If religion's about me, I'm not as concerned about them. And again, God's ears are stopped up to this sort of religion. He declares through Isaiah to the Israelites in verses 3 and 4 of the passage that was read recently, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, 
and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Religion that barters for and promotes our own self-interest to the neglect of or even to the exploitation of, as is happening in Israel here, our neighbor, the exploitation of our neighbor, the neglect of our neighbor, this sort of religion is no religion at all. Rather than opening us up, rather than opening our eyes to the needs of our neighbors from bringing us out of our own self-absorption, this sort of religion just further encloses us in on ourselves. Luther liked to call this navel-gazing. Just this idea of just constantly being obsessed with ourselves to the neglect of others. And it further imprisons us in the cold and lonely dungeons of self-obsession. This is not religion. So what is true religion? What is it that Isaiah is calling out to the people for? What is he trying to bring them back to? What's religion that's pleasing to God? First, true religion is a religion of reception. By grace, through faith. Not bartering or merit. I'll say that again. True religion is a religion of reception. By grace, through faith. To illustrate this point, Jesus offered the following parable in Luke 18, 10-14. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus continues, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee comes before God with resume in hand. He's ready to show God what he's done, how he's performed, what he's earned, what he thinks he deserves, where the tax collector comes with nothing but a broken and a contrite heart. And this is the sort of religion that of the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that's pleasing to God. For as Christ elsewhere reminds us, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As fallen human beings, we are all, every one of us in this room, we are all sick in the need of the great physician. We're all sinners in need of redemption and forgiveness. And we are all empty vessels in need of God's filling. The Gospel, that which is the power of God to, to salvation for anyone who believes, 
is itself not the news that we get what we earn. The gospel is not the news that we get what we deserve. It's not the news that we get out of this whole religion thing, what we've put in. It's not the gospel. That's the religion of the Pharisee. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross of Calvary, received what we earned. He received what we deserve. He received what we put into this. Namely, eternal judgment and divine wrath. And the Gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the same One who took what we deserve by His life, death, and resurrection, has bought for us He's purchased on our behalf forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God the Father, hope of eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the supreme privilege of being the eternally adopted and unconditionally beloved children of God. This is God's currency. True religion begins not with merit or performance. It begins with reception of what Jesus Christ has done for us by grace through faith. It is a recognition of our neediness in God's gracious provision in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why when we come to have communion later, we pray the prayer of humble access. We say, we do not presume to come to this Your table, merciful Lord. We don't come with our resume in hand. We don't come with our ritual or performance as if we trusted in our own righteousness. But in Your manifold and great mercies. We come to the table because we know we have a merciful God, not because we've earned it or deserve it. Second, true religion cannot be divorced from ethics. It does not turn a blind eye to our neighbors. It is for this reason that in our passage from Isaiah, God rhetorically asks, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. True religion, whether it involves church attendance, prayers, sermons, fasts, you name it, when it's true religion, it always overflows in acts of justice and mercy for the sake of others. It sets captives free and it breaks down yokes of injustice and oppression. When God pours His unmerited divine favor into our hearts, He does so not just to fill our hearts to the brim. This He does do, but He does it not only for that, but also to produce an overflow. As children of God, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He's taken habitation in our hearts, and it's His natural inclination, His natural disposition to overflow in acts of justice and mercy. Not as a means of earning our Heavenly Father's affections. Because these, the Spirit's already sealed, eternally, done. But rather as a response to and a reflection of 
the glorious grace that each one of us has been given. And a joyous conformity to the likeness of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And this overflow, unless we get worried about this, this overflow, this giving over of our whole being for the sake of others, will not result in the depletion of your own joy and contentment. Rather, this giving over of ourselves, it brings about their fulfillment. To those who pursue such religion, that sort of religion that receives God's grace and overflows onto others, God offers this this promise in our passage from Isaiah. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. It's one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. That true blessing, true joy, true contentment come only through self-denial. True joy comes through giving ourselves over for the sake of others. Christ Himself says, whoever would save His life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for Christ's sake, will find it. In his work, Charioting Its Fruits, a big collection of sermons on um, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, Jonathan Edwards sums up this paradox beautifully. He says, If you are selfish and make yourself in your own private interests your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interests as best you can. But if you do not seek your own, but do seek the things that are Jesus Christ and the things of your fellow human beings, then God will make your interests and happiness His own charge. And He is infinitely more able to provide for and promote it than you are. The universe moves at His bidding. We need not worry that if we give ourselves over for the sake of our neighbors that we'll run empty, that we'll run out, that our vessel will ultimately be dry. Rather, that we're promised in Scripture, and it's a, again, it's a, the great paradox of the Christian life, that the more we give ourselves over, the more God's love and joy and contentment will overflow from us onto our neighbors. So let us... Pursue true religion. When we come and worship here, let us pursue religion that humbly receives God's unmerited favor and overflows onto our neighbors. Religious activities like fasting or coming to church, saying your prayers, daily devotions, when they're pursued towards this end, towards the end of receiving God's grace and overflowing onto others, they're never condemned in Scripture as mere ritual or religion. Rather, they're encouraged throughout. And so let us pursue them, not for the sake of mere asceticism or self-exaltation or religious bartering, but rather as a means by which 
we receive the abundant love of our Heavenly Father and allow that love to flow through us onto others in acts of justice and mercy. May this love overflow from us into the feeding of the hungry, the clothing of the naked, the sheltering of the homeless, the taking care of orphans and widows, the caring for the marginalized and the lonely, the loving of the oppressed and the helpless. It is this sort of religion that is pleasing and acceptable to our Heavenly Father. Amen.